0: Well, good morning, encourage you to take your Bibles, or turn on your Bibles, whatever you have, uh, to Judges. Judges chapter 19, we're gonna be looking at the remaining chapters of Judges today. Uh, before we get there, I just wanna just say, you know, as, as a pastor here at Redeeming Grace, I'm just so encouraged by you, um, and so encouraged in many different ways. It's a good day here at Redeeming Grace, we're gonna be Voting later to call, hopefully Lord willing, an associate pastor. Uh, Just continued growth of our congregation, the needs continue to expand, and so the need for staff continues to expand. Uh, Just the last two days got to spend up in New York with Omar, uh, just to see how Lord's calling uh, his family uh, there to either Brooklyn or the Bronx, and just to spend those two days with him, praying and thinking through all that the Lord has for them. Excited to send them out to see what the Lord's going to do in and through them in the coming years. Uh, so many of you, just the Lord at work in your lives, I'm so encouraged as I speak to many of you one-on-one, just how God's calling people into ministry, preparing even this year to send others out to other places of service and ministry and, and just how God is at work here. I'm encouraged and blessed by you. Um, and so just wanted to say that and share that with you this morning. Uh, hope that you are continued, continue to be encouraged as well, just in your own walk with the Lord. God is so good and he's so faithful and we have so much to celebrate because of his grace. And so uh, he is worthy of that recognition today. Judges chapter 19, today we've been making our way through Judges since January. Today we will bring that to a close. Um, Judges 19, 20, and 21. Uh, There is a reason many pastors have not preached these chapters. In fact, uh, there is a lot here, that if, we, if we had to put a rating on this, it, it would maybe be rated R, maybe TVMA, uh, because there's some heavy graphic stuff in this passage. Um, but, as the New Testament writers remind us, God has inspired his word. He has given us his word for our instruction, correction, training, and righteousness. And so, all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired, it's profitable, it's useful for us. And so as we look at that, uh, as we think about these verses today and we're thinking, how in the world is this profitable to me? It is. It is by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we will find ways to see how this passage speaks to us uh, today. And so I want to just remind you of that. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read all of the verses. That would take pretty much the whole time. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk our way through it and we're going to read... passages and kind of summarize the sections as we go, as we talk about them today. Uh, and, And at the beginning here in just a few moments, I will try to give you kind of an overview, an outline of the remaining chapter, so you kind of have at least a working knowledge of what we're dealing with here, or else you'll get lost in the details. Uh, it's just a long narrative, and I think it's, it's best treated as one message because of its, not just because of its length, because of the, the storyline and all that's coming out of this. And so, with that said, let's pray and ask for God's help and grace as we look at his word today. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us this wonderful treasure, this wonderful truth, Lord, that speaks into our lives and that changes us. And so, Lord, as we consider your passages in these passages today in Judges, would you open our eyes and open our ears that we may see, that we may hear, and that we may respond in a way that pleases you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of self-existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. These were the words of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy during a 1992 ruling concerning an abortion case. This one sentence, this one sentence is both tragic and telling of the culture in which we live. This was the early 1990s, not 2016. Let me say it again, the quote again that he wrote in his ruling and his um, uh, comments towards this particular case. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of self-existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of this statement is a full-blown endorsement of self-autonomy and the faulty notion that each of us have the right to define what is right and true concerning life, human existence, and all the most important issues of our day. Now, it's no news to us that our culture has bought into this hook, line, and sinker. That's on full display in the world today. And it's just, just to even summarize it more so, it's basically the idea is that each of us are sovereign individuals that can say what is true and what is not true, and each of us can do that. We can redefine or define ourselves however we want in any ways that we want. And so, as a result of that, we see all of these issues trickling out into our culture today. Issues that 10 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we would have not even thought we were having to deal with, that we're having to deal with today. And so, the temptation though for us is as we think about the culture around us is to immediately jump in and begin criticizing the culture. But We're not gonna do that today. What we have to do is we have to step back and ask the question, why is the culture doing what it's doing, and why, is, why are even believers being drawn into this? See, the issues aren't the cause of the problem. The, the issues, the specific issues, whether, whatever, whatever issue it is that, that is on your heart, Um, The issues themselves aren't the crux of the problem. There's a greater problem. There's a greater issue. And I think that this this sentence from a Supreme Court justice and other things kind of get to the heart of the problem. And it's simply that each of us want to be our own gods and rule our own lives. That's the problem. That's the problem at the end of the day, all in the name of liberty, amen? The only issue is that such self-autonomy and self-sovereignty is not liberty, it's idolatry. It's an attempt to dethrone God so that we can take over and call the shots ourselves. But friends, this is not at all new. Maybe the manifestations of it are new But the root problem is not at all new. In fact, it started first in a beautiful place called Eden. It was there where a serpent tempted the first man and woman to reject their creator so that they could become their own sovereigns. The only issue there that that we see, the basic problem there in the garden was that, that they were tempted to become their own ruler, their own God. It's the basic issue that introduced sin into the world, a rebellion against the Creator. And nowhere is that more clearly on display in the scripture than right here in Judges. In fact, we see it introduced in Genesis three, and then we see it all the way through the scripture in different ways, in different shapes and sizes, but it's there, everyone wanting to do what is right in their own eyes. And so we get to the end of Judges, the very last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just yesterday, Omar and I were driving around in the Bronx, and there was a young lady that had a shirt on that said, I will do what I want. I told Omar, I said, if I could just capture that as a picture of today's worldview. I will do what I want. That's the problem that we face here in this text. That's the problem in Judges. That was the same problem in Eden, and it's the same problem in Washington. It's the same problem everywhere we go. People wanting to do their own thing. Everyone seeking to be their own God. The final chapters of Judges are some of the darkest Chapters in the Bible, shocking chapters. And when we conclude this book, we do not leave Israel on good footing. So, the question then comes, How do we think about these chapters all these years later? What are we to do with with these remaining chapters in this historical time in the life of Israel, God's covenant people? What does this final episode of Judges have to teach us in light of the reality of God's authority be trying to be set aside so that everyone can do what they want to do? So that everyone becomes God in that sense and everyone does what is right in his or her, her own eyes. What does this story teach us? We're gonna walk through it. We're gonna walk through it and I want you to see three things in light of what we're considering today. I want, first of all, us to consider a description of what's going on. Then I want us to consider a warning. And then I want us to consider a provision. A description, a warning, a provision. In fact, you could summarize the entire book of Judges in these three points. On display throughout the book of Judges is a description, a demonstration of what happens when man seeks his own way. Then you have all throughout, I think the book of Judges is in and of itself a warning to the people of God to be careful in how they respond to their creator. And then a provision. We've entitled this series when we began in January, Relentless Grace. In light of all of the sin and all of the depravity that's on full display in this book, there is this clear, clear, clear promise of God that he will love his people despite them. So let's consider these today. Let's first look at a description. Whenever God's authority is ignored or entirely rejected, we should not be surprised at how ungodly and chaotic the world becomes. You you shouldn't be shocked, friends. It shouldn't be shocking to you when the world does what the world does. When unbelievers act like unbelievers, it should not alarm you, it should not shock you, it should not, wow, how did that happen? Sin happens because we're sinners. Now, we don't have time to consider everything in great detail in these remaining chapters, but in these final chapters, we, we kinda have this, this uh, display of human depravity. We have, the, all the way throughout, the mistreatment of women, we have adultery, we have the homosexual agenda, we have brutal gang rape, murder, dismemberment, a bloody civil war, human trafficking, and kidnapping. Right here. Chapters 19, 20, and 21. If we didn't know any difference, we would think this was some kind of HBO series. But friend, this is the, 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 these are the covenant people of God acting in these ways. So how did they get to such a dark and wicked place? Dale Ralph Davis, commenting on this passage, he said the problem, the problem is not so much with what each man was doing, but with the standard that governed him. Did you catch that? The problem was not what each man was doing, but rather with the standard that governed him. They had replaced God's standard with their own subjective standard. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Their own eyes were now the standard through which they saw life and made decisions and did what they did. Friends, listen, everyone has a standard. Everyone, everyone has an authority. We may live in a day and time where we're trying to get rid of authority, get rid of standards, get rid of those things, but listen, you and I, if you're breathing, you have a standard. You have some kind of authority in your life. Now that standard and authority might be you, but you still have an authority or you have a standard. There's there's no such thing as a standardless, is that a word? Standardless I don't know. Culture. No such thing. Everyone has a standard. So our problem today is not that we have no standard to follow. That's not the problem, it's it's that we have determined and defined what that standard is instead of joyfully yielding to God's standard. That's the problem. So let's consider a few implications of this disastrous decision that Israel as a whole made to abandon God's standard and become their own standard, become their own authority, become their own functional God, so to speak. What happens? Well, number one, let's look at the scope of wickedness. Again, I kind of gave you a sampling of what you see in this passage. But let's read in chapter 19, uh, a few of the, uh, some of the section of here 19, verses one through four. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine. Now, a concubine was kind of a, a, a second wife, really just there kind of for sexual pleasure. They're almost slave-like in, in that culture. and so. Concubine think wife, but but not, not in a good way, typically. So he took, this Levite takes to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So there they ate and drank and spent the night there. Now, in verses five through 21, you have this Levite who's now gone back after his concubine. She's now back at her father's house, and the Levite goes to pursue her. And so basically what happens in in verses five through 21 is there's this delayed stay there in in her father's house. And so they try to go and his father and and mother, or his father and and this this Levite become drinking buddies basically. And so they just kind of drink it up every night. Oh, I'll just stay another night. Oh, I'll just stay another night. Oh, I'll just stay another night. That's what happens. Then we pick up in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door." Now what happens, let me back up here just a bit. After the Levite and concubine finally get away from dad's house, they begin to travel and they are traveling towards Jerusalem and they find this little town called Gibeah, where they decide to lodge overnight. And what they end up doing is they end up staying in the center, they're kind of in the town square, kind of figuring out where we're gonna stay tonight. And this traveler from Ephraim comes, the hill country comes and says, hey, why don't you stay with me? I'll offer you some hospitality. He wasn't from that town either. And so they're like, okay, we'll come to your house. And so they're at this guy's place in which he's staying. and. He's, they, this, this man from Ephraim provides the Levite and his concubine the supplies that they needed and things seem to be going well and that's what happens up until verse 21. And so in verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold the men of this city, worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master, the the Levite, rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife Taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from that day, from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Now what you have here in chapter 19 is quite a graphic example of what happens when verse 25 of chapter 21 is the operative worldview. When everyone does what is right in his own eyes, there is unlimited depravity. Anytime a people outright reject God and his authority, human sin has no limits, none. When you read this and you hear this, We are shocked to hear and read what's going on because this is a Levite, right? This is a Levite who had a particular responsibility in the nation of Israel, especially with leading and shepherding the people of God. So we're shocked. Friends, we shouldn't be at all shocked about the direction our culture continues to head because this is how they think. This is, the, this is the, the mindset that our world has. They do what is right in their own eyes, and so there's no limit to human depravity. It's exactly what happens when we try to take the throne away from God, when we try to rule ourselves. It's when we consider ourselves capable of defining what is true and right, then we only end up with a culture or society that is chaotic, and cruel, and where everything that is worst in human nature comes to the surface. When there's no king, when there's no ruler, when there's no one to govern and lead the people, when there's no one submitting to a standard that is God's standard, this is exactly how things can go. Friends, these verses are certainly repulsive and tragic, but I would actually argue that the greatest tragedy in Israel was the fact that everyone had sought to become their own God. When we read this, how should we respond? We should weep, we should mourn over the condition of the people of God at this point. These are our spiritual ancestors. These are, our, these are the people of our own heritage. Acting this way, it should cause us to Yes, be shocked, yes, be repulsed, but it should cause us to mourn over sin and over the depth, the rebellion of the human heart. Scope of wickedness. There's no end in sight when there's no authority. But what about the impact? The second thing, the impact of wickedness. The truth of the matter is is that in a culture where everyone seeks to be God, everyone doesn't get to be God. You ever thought about that? Kind of sounds good, doesn't it? Hey, you do what's right in your own eyes, but the problem with that is that you can't do what is right in your own eyes because someone else has a truth that's different than yours, and and someone somewhere along the way is going to be oppressed. Someone's going to be segregated. Someone's going to be mistreated and trampled upon and abused and rejected when humanity is allowed to run wild in this way. In this case, the horrific abuse and mistreatment of women is the result. It's clear from this passage that in that day and time, women were treated simply as property that, whose lives were expendable. A terrible indictment upon the people's view of the image of God. But this, and a plethora of other things, is actually the result of when, of what happens when God's authority is not operative in the people's lives. Another impact that we see here is, is a fractured unity in Israel. Remember Israel, 12 tribes, they're in the land, supposed to have cleared the land of the Canaanites and now they're reaping the consequences of not doing that. So let's pick up in chapter 20. Because the result of this Levite's sin, how he treated his concubine and now the, all that happened there that night and him sending out her Body in 12 different places causes a a stirring in Israel. I mean, that would get our attention as well. So we pick up there in verse one of chapter 20. So you can think now, as a result of what happened in the Levite and concubine and him sending her body the way he did out, then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, and the chiefs of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in, all the, in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night." And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take the ten men and of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people. And then, then when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So, all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows at Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of the cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So the results of what happens with this Levite and concubine is an all out civil war in Israel. Now multiple times you will see here, multiple times you will see this reference of them coming together as one man. There seems to be unity in Israel, right? But who are they unified against? Benjamin, one of their own tribes. So in what seems to be a demonstration of unity, there is great fracture, there is great disunity because now they are fighting against one another. They act no better than the pagan Canaanite nations around them acting in this foolish dark way there's this great divide there's this again this passage should calls us to mourn over the extent of israel's behavior i mean just think about the levite even the levite in telling the story he kind of he kind of reshapes the story to serve his own his own kind of his own version of the story to make it sound better He doesn't really give all the facts in the way that they actually happen so that as a result of that retold story, now Israel's responding in a way that's going to bring civil war to that that nation. It causes us to mourn. They show us that, that even the covenant people of God are not immune to such horrific behavior. Now friends, when when we think about that, we should think about our own hearts, our own lives, our our own place among the people of God. While we might not be so brazen and flamboyant with our sin as they were here, there may very well be hidden or camouflaged sin in your own heart and life, just like the Levite we might be presenting ourselves better than the whole truth would actually say. Friend, this should remind us that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, and no matter how you think or behave or present yourself, there's coming a day when your sin will be found out. There's coming a day when you will be held accountable you might be skilled at covering your sin before others, but do not be fooled, for God sees and God knows everything. When we hear this passage, and certainly when we get into chapter 21, we see how, how, how God is actually using Israel to bring judgment against Benjamin, we will, be held account, we will be held accountable for our own failures and our own sin, and this passage here is partly to remind us of that reality, that danger that, that's posed to each of us when we have no king or authority but our own. It reminds us just how much we need a savior outside of ourselves. The impact of wickedness, there's no end which leads me right into point number two, a warning. So you have the description. We could, again, we didn't even scratch the surface of all that's going on in here, but there's so much sin, so much depravity because of their failure to submit to God. So there's a description of what happens. Now there's a warning. One of the striking things about this passage is the fact that this is Israel. These are the people of God, the very ones, abusing the women, lying and deceiving, participating in human trafficking and massacre. These are God's covenant people. This is not, this is not the Philistines, not the Jebusites, this is not the Canaanites, this is not all those other ites. These are the Israelites. And let this account serve us all as a strong warning that even with all of our experiences of God's grace, even with all the privileges that, privileges that we have as the people of God, we too can find ourselves in a place away from moving away from God and His authority. I think that's the, that the point of verse 30 in chapter 19. All who saw it, such a thing, All who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. In other words, be warned. Let this serve as a warning to you. Let this speak to you. Let this cause you to check yourself because really what we see here is this. Even among the people of God, unfaithfulness is possible. Some of us think, we're just fooled. We think, oh, I'm a Christian. My life will be holy from this day forward. Praise God, we're covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Praise God for that, but listen, friends. That does not mean that you will not continue until Christ returns or you go to glory. It does not mean that you will not struggle in the flesh and wrestle with sin. Because you're not saved by your righteousness. You're saved by the righteousness of Christ. There are many things that had led to this chaotic scene, but it surely, surely was started by this rejection and abandonment of God's authority. You know, today, our our culture knows nothing of that. We we, we see that. To to even speak of God's authority brings ridicule. And I don't expect it to be any different anytime soon. In fact, I think it will continue to, to grow worse. But the warning here is not a warning Necessarily for the culture. The warning is for the people of God. Because the people of God are the ones that are in sin and the ones that are in failure mode here, big time. And so this warning is for their sake. The warning is for our sake. Friends, every day there are Christians. Every day there are churches. Every day that fall away to the philosophies and worldviews that stand opposed to God's revealed truth. All over the landscape of the worlds, all over the landscape of the United States, there are Christians and churches that are falling away, falling by the wayside because they are abandoning the authority of God. They're seeking to do Judges 21-25 in their churches. Whatever feels right, whatever sounds right, whatever kind of makes us we relate well to the culture, that's what we will do. I know what God's word says, but... We don't want to be offensive. Friends, I find it amazing that even in many of our conservative evangelical colleges and universities, we find these same things happening. Students who have a worldview shaped more by the flow of culture and opinion of their professor than they do the Bible. You know, we have 11, 12, 13 graduating seniors this year, right from this church. That's pretty amazing. So we kind of have a, a dozen, right? A dozen that's being sent out into the world in some way. For, so if you're one of those seniors, my, let me just speak to you for a moment. Everybody else listen and apply it to your own life too. Let me just speak to you though for just a moment. My warning to you is this, when you get out out from the the flow of your normal family life, and you get out into the world, whether you're going right to work or going to college, listen, your faith is going to be tested and challenged like you have never thought before. It's going to happen. Your faith is going to be shaken. You're gonna be presented with philosophies and arguments about life and truth that will cause you to question everything you have thought about and learned about in the church. In Some places it will be more subtle, in other places it will be quite bold. You will be challenged. Bart Ehrman is an American New Testament scholar at UNC Chapel Hill, North Carolina. At one time, he was a conservative Bible-believing Christian, went to Moody Bible Institute, later graduated from Wheaton College. Bastions of evangelical Christianity, believe the Bible, serve the church. He later, though, graduated with a Master's of Divinity and PhD from Princeton Seminary. No longer now does he identify as an evangelical Christian, but rather as an unbelieving skeptic. And in his classes at UNC Chapel Hill, he he often begins his class in this way, and this is a direct quote from him. The first day of class... With over 300 students present, I ask, how many of you would agree with the proposition that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Woosh, virtually everyone in the auditorium raises their hand. I then ask, how many of you have ever one or how many of you have ever read one or more of the Harry Potter books? Woosh, the whole auditorium. Then I ask, and how many of you have read the entire Bible? Scattered hands, a few students here and there I always laugh and say okay look I'm not saying that I think God wrote the Bible you're telling me you think God wrote the Bible I can see why you would want to read a book by J.K. Rowling but if God wrote a book wouldn't you want to see what he has to say friends those are the words from an unbelieving skeptic and he nails it if God wrote a book wouldn't you want to know what he has to say The reason that so many college students and adults, and even before that, the reason so many people abandon the faith is because they do not have a clue what the word of God says. Clueless. Just ask how many of you, how many of you have read the Bible in its entirety? How many of you have looked at it? to see what God has to say. I think that there is no greater indictment today upon the church than so many biblically illiterate Christians. Clueless, clueless. As if God's word is authoritative if he is the creator of the universe and he has inspired everything that we need for life and godliness in the Bible, in his book, then do you not think that we ought to build and shape our lives by it? This is very simple. If you're heading to college soon and you've not scratched the surface of scripture, you are in a world of hurt. And I'm not trying to say that to scare you because I believe God's sovereign. I believe God is is sufficient in his work in your life and if you're a believer, he's going to guide you and shape you and navigate you through, through any difficulty that you will face, but listen, you better know what you're talking about because there are many unbelievers in the world today that know your Bible's better than you know it. And it's just simple. It's a simple failure to allow the word of God to be authoritative in our lives. We kind of do what we want to do, and oh yeah, give Jesus a little head nod every now and then. It's a big deal, friends. All this is is a simple plea. Whether you're going to college, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a working mom, whether you're a a dad who, who runs around, whether you're not a parent at all. This is a simple plea for you to to invest yourselves in God's word, because if you don't, you are functionally acting like Judges 21, 25. It was just this past week, how much of God's word did you read? I'm not a legalist. I don't think well, if you didn't read this long and this much, you're, you're not a Christian. That's up to you in the Lord, but did you even open the Bible this week? If you didn't even open the Bible this week, functionally, you're Judges 21, 25, doing what you want your, And what's your, what's your authority? What governed your process of thinking this week? It wasn't God's word because you weren't in it. It was your own perspective, your own opinion, which is being formed by so many other things. This is exactly what led Israel to where they were. Just don't be so foolish to think that you can navigate the world today without, with, with kind, of, kind of this, 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 Shallow approach to scripture. Friends, open the Bible. See for yourselves how it addresses the realities and problems of the world around us. See for yourself the scope and sequence of God's amazing redemptive work ultimately culminating in the finished work of Christ. Fall in love with the pages of scripture because it is God's inspired and errant word that he has given us for our own good and for his own glory. There's a warning here. The warning is that, listen, if you're not submitting to God's authority, whose authority are you submitting to? Because you will submit to some authority. And that authority may very well be your own eyes. And listen, all of us make lousy gods. You're just a lousy God. None of us, none of us could even come close to being who he is. And then number three, a provision. A provision. As we keep reading, as we keep reading this story, Israel gets into this civil war with one of its own tribes, Benjamin, and thro- though it loses many thousand, it finally kind of puts Benjamin, to basically destroys Benjamin. There's 600 men left, 600 men. That means all of the women, all of the children, and a bunch of other men were slaughtered and killed. 600 men left in Benjamin, that's it. We read on in the chapter, later chapter of tw- chapters twenty and into chapter twenty one, and we have these six hundred left. So the problem that's facing Benjamin now is that by the time you get to chapter twenty one is there's only six hundred men. There's no hope for their tribe to continue. How are they going to have babies? There's only men and all of the other tribes of Israel had made a vow that they're not getting our wives. And so that's exactly what chapter 21 does. So what do they do? Benjamin is almost destroyed and, and the remaining men have, have no wives, so they do what you would expect any corrupt sinful nation would do. They engage in human trafficking and kidnapping to get them some wives from Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead, and you can read about that in chapter 21. And that's how Judges ends. The Civil War happens, Benjamin's almost annihilated, destroyed, they realize there's 600 men left, no wives, and so they go steal wives from this little city that didn't come fight with Israel. They kill all of their their inhabitants, and there's 400 virgins left, and they basically steal those 400 virgins, and then they go to Shiloh and steal 200 others so that Benjamin can have a legacy. That's how Judges ends. The fighting subdues, the tribes of Benjamin is almost annihilated, but thanks to the terrorism that happens in Jabesh Gilead, there are there's hope for Benjamin, I guess. And every man departed to his own tribe and family and settled in his inheritance. That's what we read when you get to chapter 21, verse 24. And the people of Israel departed from that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they were Um, They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. War is over. The 12 tribes, Benjamin just barely hanging on, goes back to their own places and settle. You think about that, that's how the book of Judges ends, and then with the capstone. In those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a great encouragement, isn't it? That's how the book of Judges ends. What? is what possibly, what possibly could we draw out of this final scene that is good, that that points to some kind of provision of God? Let me try to point that out as we close. Even though the event that happened in Benjamin is virtually a repeat of what happened in Sodom back in Genesis. Unlike Sodom, which was completely destroyed, there was a remnant left in Benjamin. God was gracious. As evil as they were, he did not completely destroy them. And when you get to the end of Judges, I mean, we've walked our way through it for these past five months. When you get to the end of Judges, is it not a miracle that by the time we get to where we are that there's even an Israel left? I mean, is that not amazing? That God even allows Israel to be alive? as corrupt and as bad as things have gotten, there's a miracle here. God is staying faithful to his promise, even through the remnant, even through all of the corruption and human depravity that that existed in in their own day. He is faithful to his promise. Even when we get to the final words of verse 25, these are the words, of someone writing these words, looking back. Looking back to days now past. For after all of the tragedy of Judges, we do have the book of Ruth. After Judges comes the story of Boaz and Ruth. After Judges comes the story of Hannah and Samuel. After Judges comes the story of David and Solomon. God preserving, God keeping a people for himself, raising up new people who are faithful to him and you want to honor him. Judges does not end with revival. But it does end with a glimmer of hope because God's relentless sovereign grace is so much greater than the depths of man's sin. That's the point of Judges. As bad as we are, God is greater. As sinful and as corrupt and as rotten as we can be, God's love, his mercy, his grace is so much greater. The problem in Israel was that they had no king and they had no standard but their own. Friends, the only thing that stops anyone from jumping headfirst into sinful indulgence is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Friends, you don't have to live as if there's no king, because there is a king, he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. You don't have to live under the, under the, the ruling of your own authority, you can actually live under the joyful provision of God's authority. It's the temptation that will be to sit on the throne ourselves, to fight for our own autonomy. But friends, as you consider this, as you consider God's amazing, relentless grace, will you marvel? Will you marvel at him? Will you look to him and just simply marvel in all that he is and all that he does for sinners? Will we realize that our calling is to be redeemed image bearers who pursue what is right in God's eyes and not what is right in our own eyes? Will that be your response? Will you just simply behold the great provision of God and rejoice and worship him and serve him all your days or or will you continue to be content in living by what is right in your own eyes? Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. Living in light of God's authority or living in light of your authority? Let's pray. Father, we we acknowledge that as we conclude this historical account of your people in Judges, God, that we are taken aback by just how dark and bad things grew. Lord, it's a reminder to each of us, Lord, that we too are not beyond, we're not beyond living the same way. Lord, maybe there are even people in this room that they may not be living outwardly in such rebellion, but inwardly, their lives are so filled with darkness. God, would you call them to repentance? Would you allow your grace to pursue them in such a way that their lives would be confronted, transformed? Lord, that they would no longer see themselves as God, but Lord, that they would yield to you as their God. Father, if we are here today and we're not a Christian, Lord, that's how we operate. It may not, we may not think that way. But Lord, if, we're, if, we're not, if we don't belong to you, then we belong to something. And usually that something is ourselves. We try to make ourselves God. We try to make ourselves Lord and King and ruler. But the fact, Lord, is that we, we make lousy gods. And our sin, only alienates us from you. So God, would you, would you pursue such people this morning? Would you allow your effectual call to be happening upon the lives of people in this room, even now as I speak? God, open the eyes of the blind, unstop the, the, the ears of the deaf, and Lord, raise the dead to life. Father, there may be many in this room have yielded their life to you, they've trusted in you as Savior and Lord, they, 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 they believe the gospel, their hope is heaven, but it may be, Lord, that they, they, they get trapped and they get caught up in the midst of their own struggles of sin and shame and failure and realize, Lord, that they are on a track that is far from you, just like your own people in Israel. They're not running to you, they're running from you. God, would you stop them right now? Would you allow your spirit to just pursue them and to bring them back to a a place where they see you as king and Lord and not trying to be their own? Father, were it not for your grace, none of us could stand. None of us would be where we are. So we're dependent upon your grace. We're dependent upon the provision that you've provided through Christ. And Lord, would you allow that provision to just saturate your people and saturate the people in this room today in a way that brings victory, the way that brings repentance, the way that brings hope, Father, may we be a people that do not what is right in our own eyes, but Lord, may we be a people joyfully, joyfully yielding to what is right in your eyes, defending what is true and what is right because you have declared it. Lord, would we be a people that is, that is committed in a way that is in a unified way to be defenders and proclaimers, heralds of your truth in a world that completely rejects it. Father, have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.